Hello, 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 everyone. Hope you're doing well, or at least as best as you can during these crazy times. Today's episode is the audio I did from a the Political Pharmacist podcast. Uh, we, uh, Eric was kind enough to interview me and talk about uh, my experiences growing up um, being black in America. And, uh, and then we talked about like some racial disparities in healthcare and um, what healthcare providers can do to kind of uh, deal with what's going on in the world. So hope you enjoy. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today have Dr. Richard Wade. Uh, Dr. Wade is the president of Buca Health down there in Florida and previously worked retail and community pharmacy for Target. He's also the host of RX Radio and graduated from the University of Florida Orlando campus. So with that, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Wade. Eric, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, today, we're actually going to take on a challenging topic here and with some of the protests going on around the country and pharmacy being directly impacted and one of the businesses that's had to stay open through the pandemic as well, I feel like that this is a topic that we're really going to hit on and try to discuss since obviously I have a lot of respect for Dr. Waith and he's got a lot for me as well. I do want to preempt this a little bit. Dr. Waith is actually a black man and I'm a white man. If, if you couldn't tell that, you know, hey, that's whatever it is, what it is. But we wanted to have this dialogue because this is kind of like what's going on in our world. And we need more people to kind of open up and share experiences and try and you know, really relate that to what we can do as pharmacists to make a difference since we're in every community all across the United States. And obviously, the uh, with this podcast actually wouldn't exist if it wasn't for some of the inspiration, tips, tricks, and a, a lot of Facebook messages going back to Dr. Waith here. So, you know, Dr. Waith, thanks again for coming on here. I can't say how much I appreciate it, but, you know, I did want to ask you, you know, reason I brought you on the podcast today, can you share some general stories of what it's like growing up black in America? Yeah. So Eric, thank you. Like, this is so important for us to go through. And like the fact that you, you know, are willing to have this conversation, um, especially on a healthcare podcast of, of all things, a pharmacy podcast of all things, um, to be able to have this conversation, I know it's not easy uh, to, to kind of head on. So I appreciate that. Um, on another side of it, it's also hard as someone that is kind of grew up this way. It's, it's actually hard for us to, to articulate and to, to talk through a lot of these things. So uh, I'm really excited, though, to be able to. And the reason why I actually agreed to do it um, is because I feel like a lot of times people see these things that like are occurring, maybe not within uh, their circles or, um, or or because they're in a, especially people that are professionals. This isn't something that's often covered and talked about a lot by those professionals. So I wanted to be someone that is like does actually talk about it and talk through some of those things. Uh, a lot of times people hear about it maybe in their hometowns from like people that didn't go to their pharmacy school or they see it on TV and stuff. So I thought it'd be interesting to kind of, you know, give my perspective, uh, kind of talk about some of these things. And I've had my fair share of uh racist issues and, and dealing with racism throughout my entire life. Um, I have a bunch of stories that I can give. Uh, and I, and one thing I think that's important to point out is there's probably, there's probably virtually no person that is of color that has probably not experienced some form of racism. Uh, and a lot of times it's things that they'll never forget, uh, which, and I've, and I've had a lot of those instances and I have friends that 
have a lot of those same instances, but not going to go through any of those. Um, I'm just going to give some like one particular thing just to show some insight into how from a day to day perspective, from being young all the way to an adult, how this can kind of affect um, affect someone that is um, that is black. So uh, one thing that's interesting, like one thing I want to talk about is something that happened in the 90s, actually. And it was something that that made it onto the news. And it was with a uh, the story of a person named uh, Amadou Diallo. He was a uh, 20 year old. He was a 20 year old, um, I think, about to be student that was in New York City. And he was actually stopped by the police because the police was searching for, I think, a, an armed rape suspect, allegedly. And they stopped him. And at the time that he was going for his wallet, they thought that he was going for his gun. And they ended up, or going for a gun, not his gun. They did not find a gun on the scene. Uh, this man was going for his wallet and uh, the police shot him like, I want to say it was like 40 times or definitely more than 20, but they shot him and killed him. And it was over the mistake of thinking that his wallet that he was going for or had was was a weapon. The reason I bring that story up is because I was a teenager when that had happened and when it had made the news, it was something that my mom saw and immediately kind of traumatized my mom about like potentially like being black and someone mixing that you were just having a wallet and literally getting killed for it. And it was around that time that I started getting, like, for lack of better terms, like, as a teenager, training from my mom as to, like, how I should conduct myself if I'm ever, like, talking to a police officer. And, you know, it, it's interesting because I feel like the general public will think, well, it's, you know, obviously you want to be nice to everyone and you should be respectful to authorities. And, um, you know, you should, you, know, you should comply with the things that they say to do. But for someone that's black... It's not it's you're not getting taught that because it's the right thing to do. You're getting taught that so you don't potentially get killed because they might think that you're a threat. And it's crazy because I'm a teenager realizing that because of the way I look, I have to act a certain way to try to make sure they don't think I'm like threatening them and then they kill me. So like it's just crazy because. When I think about, you know, everyone, I don't want to say everyone, but at some point in time, someone might get pulled over for maybe they rolled through a stop sign or maybe they were speeding or whatever the case may be. But it's terrifying for someone growing up black and having those sorts of trainings because now you're paranoid and now you're trying to remember, OK, what did what did she tell me to do? OK, put my hands on the steering wheel, make sure they could always see my hands, um, you know, be super nice and respectful. Uh, if you're going to reach for something like make sure that you tell them what you're reaching for and where it's at. Uh, it's even gone to a point where a lot of times police officers have a flashlight, especially this is like if it's at night, they have a flashlight with them. So sometimes I would tell them like, hey, uh, can you shine your light on my glove box so I can show you that I'm grabbing my register or just so you can help me find my registration. I'm saying that to help me find my registration, but it's really in my mind to sh like be comfortable to know that they are clearly seeing that what I'm reaching for is not a weapon. It's for a piece of paper. So that's just like one instance that the fear was driven into me from my mom being kind of traumatized by what she saw in the news. And then me being a teenager all the way up to a couple of weeks ago with seeing the things that happened with George Floyd and obviously things that have happened just over the course of the years to me being a grown adult and still having my mom like concerned about the fact that her son is, um, is dark 
and at any given moment could potentially be in one of those situations. So that's just like a, a, a quick, I think, very subtle but real thing that, that me as a black man had to go through growing up with that sort of fear. Yeah, you know, and obviously I, I have a very hard time, I'll say like empathizing because I totally empathize with where you're at, but I have a hard time relating to it because my experiences have been very different. Uh, as I was telling you in the lead up, I definitely have family members of mine who have racist tendencies, if not are just straight up, flat out racist. And it, it was always something I always felt uncomfortable with growing up. And you just because I would always, I don't know if I'm just too objective as a person or somewhere maybe on the, the spectrum with it, but I was always like, hey, that's a person, like, what are you doing? And I always thought it was weird that, like, my mom would take me to places like inner city Cleveland to do job fairs and help educate kids and to work with them. And a lot of those kids were black, were minorities. But as soon as we left there, she's like, yeah, you don't go to that neighborhood. And I was like, well, wait a minute. Like, why not? Like, we just went there. They were the same as me or a couple of years younger. Like, why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you go there? I, I don't understand the difference here. And so it was, it was very interesting. And for me, since you kind of mentioned some of these names, I think it's interesting that a lot of people like me who are white, we remember these names for a short period of time, but they don't stick with us unless they were huge. Like Rodney King obviously does. But the gentleman you just named, I had never heard of him before until you just mentioned him on this, on this podcast. And it was a little eye-opening for me to hear you describe that situation. So I thought that was a little bit – it just kind of proves to me that like being a white person, we do have our blindness to this to some degree. And I probably haven't heard of all these stories. One of the reasons I wanted you on here was because you had shared like some thoughts on social media as well too. But I also have a lot of friends who are from Florida and from the South who have went to HBCUs. And I think every black man I know who's a pharmacist shared a story with this. So I knew this wasn't something that just, you know, it was a small group of people. This is even in fact people with doctor degrees who are well-educated, well-spoken and are some of the most upstanding people I know like yourself and are still having to go through this. And for me, I think that's the one thing that, I don't want to say positive came out of George Floyd, but helped open my eyes to this a little bit more was seeing people share these stories and why I realized, and like, hey, we got to talk about this. Like, we're going to transition a little bit to going on about kind of what pharmacists can do or, and when it comes to pharmacy. But I think that's one of the things that, is, you know, we need to talk about this. And for me, I've always been very open with my techs because of where I work. They tend to be more a uh, higher percentage of minorities. So they know that I have their back on things like this, but it also helps me learn kind of how to better serve my patients. And it's just, it's crazy to me because it's, it's so hard to talk about it. No one wants to talk about it, but now everyone is talking about it. And I think we get, need to roll with that momentum if we want to see change to some of the issues you were talking about. Like if you have to reach for your wallet, how do you do that properly? Well, yeah. the question is why should you have to do that properly? You know, should the hand grab my wallet, if that, and then you grab it out. Yeah. And I think what's interesting, you know, you mentioned about how you, you know, you've known a lot of other professionals that are that are black and, and hear about some of their stories potentially. What's other interesting too? What the, something else that's interesting that people might not realize. And this is something that I learned. Like, I don't I can't remember exactly when I learned this in my life or kind of realized this. But um, I've really realized that or at least the perception that I've had. And, and the reason I'm comfortable sharing this is because I've actually spoken about this to other people of color that. Um, share this actual the same experience which is which was crazy for me because I thought it was just something that I, I had to deal with myself like only and I didn't know other other black people had to deal like or dealt with this themselves and that is when you're out in public and like you're conducting yourself 
we have this pressure of like we are representing like people that look like us and it's 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 a it's a different type of pressure because like i'm very I'm, i consider myself to be a very nice guy like you know and i know that this isn't something that i only i do it only because i'm black like i know that i have there's genetics involved like i look at other family members of mine i can see that they're also very charismatic and happy and things like that and, and help people but it's actually different i feel like for me growing up here and especially growing up in miami um where it, a lot of some of these areas are not predominantly black. Like I, I did not actually grow up in a predominantly black neighborhood. It was actually Hispanic or white, uh, the neighborhoods I grew up in. And then obviously now, and then when I go to college, you know, that starts to obviously get a little bit less. I, I didn't go to an HBCU. I went to um, FIU, which pretty diverse. But, and then when you go to pharmacy school, it, it starts to be less and less. It, it's more and more clear that you are a minority, I would say. Yeah. And then what happens is, is you start to get this pressure of like, I'm representing everyone that looks like me. I need to be super nice. I need to be super helpful. I need to always be smiling. I need to make sure people know that I'm not a threat and I'm com and I'm comfortable with them. So like I've always had this and it's just crazy that I've actually talked to a couple other people and they're like, yeah, me too. Like we feel like we have this, this pressure and it's because we are trying to like, we're trying to do our part from a day to day to like reverse potential racism and like reverse the potential stereotype that like that is put on like what the media or whatever it is that um, or even like old cultures, you know, or, or old yeah. history, like what they think of us. It's like it's like we're trying to break that down by holding the door longer than we probably would have um, if it was for someone else or going out of our way to pick something up that someone dropped. And it's funny because a lot of times you do these things like as a nice person, as a nice, polite person, you want to do these things. But sometimes as a black person you're you're doing it much more consciously because you think that you're representing the people that look like you and you're trying to change like the outside perspective of how people view someone that looks like you so yeah it's a very interesting yeah. thing that like we we go through sometimes yeah you know this is this is in no way the same context because you know you're dealing with this 24 7 as a black man I totally understand that. And it puts a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. Cause like you said, no matter where you go, if you're around people who are of the same, you know, ethnicity or people who are different ethnicity, you know, you're, you're wearing your ethnicity with you as you walk around. White people don't have to deal with that a whole lot. The only time I think I've ever, ever dealt with anything that's even remotely close to that. And I don't know if you know this about me. I am a huge basketball fan. I used to go to the rec center all the time in Toledo. Well, when you went to Toledo at the rec center, there was not always a ton of white people playing basketball. In fact, there was really almost like a black court and a white court. And I always took pride that, you know, I would go and play with all the black guys. But at the same time, I felt like I had to prove myself to them that I was good enough to get on the court. Yeah. And, you know, like, honest to God, it was crazy. So like, a few years later, I went back and I was an advisor for my fraternity and I'm dealing with some of the guys there. And I'm just walking through campus and I see some of the guys who were a few, quite a few years younger than me stop me on campus and like, Oh, Hey, you're going to play ball later. And I'm like, no, you know, I'm just here with these guys, whatever. Like, well, Hey, come on, stop on by, whatever. And I thought nothing of it. Cause I had played with these guys for a few years. And when I walked away, some of the white kids were like, you know them, how do you know them? And I'm like, I just played basketball with them. Like it's, you know, I treat them like a human being. What, yeah. what the heck do you mean? I, why shouldn't I know them? Like, what do you mean by that? And it, it, again, it's a very, very like minuscule portion of that, but I can at least, 
understand where you're coming from with that and where you feel like you had to prove yourself a little bit yeah, and with I, some of that. And I feel like, you know, there's, there's probably examples like that in, in, in also other cultures, like whether someone's Hispanic, even yeah. probably women have to deal with that sort of pressure, uh, you know, because uh, of culture changes with women being more prominent leaders and um, than, yeah. than, than what people have been used to or what culture has been used to. So I think that that is definitely, you know, can scale out to a lot of different things, but it's just, it's one thing that I don't think people realize that uh, also comes along with being black. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, I mean, it's like the way you said that, like everywhere you go, it's with you. And then when you realize it, it really stands out that it definitely sticks with me a little bit there. And, you know, when it comes to, comes to something like pharmacy, you know, we kind of started talking a little bit about this beforehand too, but you had mentioned that it's important as a pharmacist, obviously to be sensitive to all sorts of different cultures and who walks in there and to treat everyone not just the best, but like the best care you can, but, you know, really tailor it to them. What are some of the issues you've kind of seen around like pharmacy as far as it comes to profiling or things of that nature? Yeah, I think probably every, I mean, it's probably gonna be hard to say that not every pharmacy has had some form of profiling going on like in their store. And, and I think there's a couple of things that play into that. Um, you know, especially being uh, like con- dealing with controls and things like that. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's also the fear for for the clinician that starts to play into that. And then they start coming up with all these other excuses uh, with trying to figure out as to why maybe, you know, they, they won't fill something. Uh, but I think w- what gets really difficult here is uh, also thinking about like something like sickle cell disease, like sickle cell yeah. disease requires. Uh, and, and this was like, this is a topic that was brought to my, um, not that, it, not that I didn't know about it, but I think so, uh, there's a, there's someone that I had on, on our pod, on our trade podcast that kind of brought this up. Um, Dr. Markway, he really is like an advocate for, um, pain patients and he, and he has some personal, uh, family history with someone that has sickle cell disease in his family. And, you know, this is a disease that's primarily aff- affects, um, black people for the most part. And like, a lot of times the a lot of the treatment is like like um controlled c2s like hard pain medications and it's just it kind of sucks to hear some of the stories because a lot of times those patients are 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 sick somewhere like they don't have the energy to come out and go to the pharmacy to get their prescriptions so being that they're black they obviously have a black family member that's now going to a pharmacy to pick up a control or to drop off a prescription for controlled that is not specifically for them but because they're black, it makes it's almost a little bit more difficult now to get those those things filled. So those sorts of like scenarios are very difficult and I think are very real um, in pharmacy. And I, I think that could happen with with whether someone's black or maybe they appear to be a little bit lower educated in a lower income status than someone else might be like the way that they articulate themselves. So I think there's a lot of those biases that are involved there. I don't, I don't think I, I can't, I don't think skin colors is the only one. It's definitely a factor, but I think getting past a lot of those things uh, and really trying to get a bigger, a bigger picture as to like what it is that's going on with that person uh, I think is, is something that we need to do. Uh, I would encourage anyone to follow him on Twitter. I'm actually going to try to find his handle here because he's a, he's a really great advocate for, uh, for this particular reason. So his Twitter handle is at, uh, Ghana boy farm D it's G H A N A B as in boy O Y farm D. 
I would follow him and like maybe start to see a lot of some of the posts that he creates um, and some of the attention and awareness that he brings to the sorts of situations, because while there's probably a lot of other things and we can, we might even jump into a little bit of some of the health disparities. That's definitely one of them that I've seen. Yeah. And you know, that was a thing for me that was really eye opening when I started practicing in pharmacy, because I started my first actual job as a pharmacist on the East side of Cleveland, which if you're familiar with the uh, demographics up here has a much higher uh, black population than the west side of Cleveland, where I grew up. And it was just so eye-opening to me to see how many prescriptions came through and said sickle cell on it. And even before the required diagnosis codes, a lot of the providers were putting that on there to try and help their patients out because, you know, it would try and, as you said, help alleviate some of those connotations or inferences that people made around people with those disease states. So, but yeah, I've seen that myself and I've been put in that awkward spot where you see someone's a little too early or, you know, what's the call I make with this? Because they said, yeah, they admitted they took more than they previously had because they had a flare up. And I'm like, okay, well, that sounds legit. They have a diagnosis here, but I know there's legal things I have to follow. So what, you know, what's the right call to make? It's a, I don't want to say it's a no win situation, but it's a, it's a very sticky and gray situation as far as pharmacy goes. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. So the, uh, kind of some of the other stuff you're talking about health disparities too. And Obviously, pharmacists, one thing that's interesting is obviously we have a lot of Caucasian white people who are in pharmacy. And we, because pharmacy pays pretty decent, we're affluent compared to most of the patients that we deal with. There's obviously some exceptions in some areas. But I, I like the part that you brought up about income can also be a factor because I've definitely seen that as well. You have to try and you know, reposition your mind to try and better address that person because you might be complaining of, well, they only have a dollar copay. Why can't they afford it? But you really need to try and think that through of a dollar for them might be a, a serious issue of their next meal or this prescription. So I really like that you brought that up, even aside from any sort of skin tone or racial issue. That's a that's a huge one in pharmacy, whether it comes to like, you know, some of your Suboxone patients yeah. and things of that nature. You know, what's interesting, too, about that. Uh Working in Miami, uh, specifically, I, I was a pharmacist in a in an area called Brickle, which is a uh, has such a crazy dynamic and and uh, spread of income. Where sometimes I would have one patient that is literally homeless, and I used to work at Publix um, during this time that I'm mentioning. And Publix has offers a certain list of medications that are actually free with a prescription, right? So because yeah. of that, it's obviously really helpful for homeless people. Uh, now. Being that I'm a, I'm a pharmacist in Brickle, this this is a fairly fancy area that has not only homeless people um, at times, but also people that might own literally private jets or own like a building wow. like in that area or something like that. And what's actually pretty interesting, though, is that I might have to explain to a homeless person about asthma or an inhaler the same way I'd have to explain that to someone that is of high wealth. <laughs> So, so that's also another thing too, to realize is like, just because someone has looks like they're wealthy or looks like they're educated, doesn't always translate over to health literacy. Um, so I think there's like another sort of thing to think about, especially when it comes to income, but I think you're right. And I've actually had to deal with literally people. And this is, this is freaking heartbreaking. Like just to think about how literally someone will tell me I cannot afford the $5, for this month because I literally like need to have a, a meal at some point and yeah. like having to deal with that sort of like, it's so hard. Like there's, 
and I know this is like, you know, obviously people can get fired for doing things like that. But like there's literally there's literally times where like I've covered copays um, for people because you can just genuinely see that like there's a problem there. Um, yeah. You know, in Miami and like some I mean, I'm not advocating for this, but we even had like a little jar because sometimes people would just like leave change like, oh, just keep the change or whatever. And like a lot of times you're thinking that like they're tipping us <laughs> or something, but we actually have a jar <laughs> for like dealing with like people that can't afford a copay. And because it's usually small dollars, you know, like. Yeah. Like usually it's like someone like not wanting to pay like a two or a five or $10 copay. And we'll just kind of chip in from that jar or something like that. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking um, to, to think that that's like a real situation for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that's interesting that I, I guess I, I've probably done the same thing, but I never really thought of it that way that you had somebody who has no money and someone who has a private jet, but the way that you explain something to them is literally almost the exact same way so that they can understand it because health literacy is it's, its own freaking language basically when yeah. it comes to comes it to it so yeah that's that's a that's a pretty good comparison there that i didn't think of but yeah that's a it's a great one there to point out so what pharmacists we have to go through and do to really address the needs of every one of our patients whether they're coming in and they're a physician or they're coming in and they're homeless or they're coming in and they're you know an nba player or you know whatever you can think of right exactly so so yeah, the uh, the other thing that you kind of mentioned, we're we'll kind of diving into a little bit more here, was health disparities. Knowing that obviously a lot of the minority populations have are more pre-exposed to, you know, diabetes, pre-diabetes, a lot of those type of health conditions, and we've actually seen some of that play out with COVID of who it's affecting more. What do you think pharmacists could do to, I don't want to say adequately because it probably won't be enough, but to better address some of those health disparities without coming off as if they're, you know, being racist or they're treating them differently. What would, what would you do or what are your thoughts around that so that they can address the person in a professional way, but also make sure that they're really truly addressing their health needs? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's just being able to ask the right questions, um, honestly, because, and, and what's difficult here is that you want to almost do this for every patient, you know, like you don't, you don't want yeah. to like ask the right questions only to your black patients. You know I mean? It's, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it's a little, it's, it's kind of tricky when, when you kind of talk about territories like this, especially from being a healthcare, but uh, being a healthcare provider. But I, I think one thing that we need to do a better job at as healthcare professionals is being able to recognize what the problems might be. Because once we can recognize what the problems might be and what the challenge, what challenges um, people might face in certain um, uh, ethnicities, it might allow us to better ask those right questions. Um, because a lot of times you're probably asking the questions that you would you would ask every single customer, whereas there might be certain questions that you might need to ask um, your patients that are black um, or your patients that are Hispanic or of lower income or of higher income. So I think just understanding a little bit more about and, and this kind of brings into also like the whole term, you know, the hot topic now, social determinants of health. It's really diving into those what those social determinants of health are, uh, how that how you play a role as a provider to be able to address some of those things and just recognizing that they're, they exist. They're there, that every patient is different um, and, and that we have to try to do our best to start asking the right questions um, to our patients. Yeah, you know, and ever since kind of COVID started peaking and people, we realized had a lot of anxiety and things like that. One thing I've tried to share with a lot of my technicians are, I want you to go out and try and make a difference in two people today. And I don't care if it's just showing you care. Like somebody you see is having a bad day, somebody who's stressed out, just take that extra like 
10 seconds with them and say, you know, hey, you know, has everything been good with you? Like, what's going on? And the other day, it really hit me because I had a lady who came in. She was black and I was talking with her and she had one of those like lower copays and we were kind of talking about it. She's like, oh, man, like, he didn't give me money for this. And it was one of those weird situations where I was like, oh, I know we can't pay for this, kind of like you alluded to earlier. But I, I told her, I'm like, well, hey, you know, if they can pay via, via smartphone or they can pay this way or they can pay whatever. And she's like, oh, yeah, I would do that, but he's not a smartphone. And then it kind of dawned on me. I'm like, you know, we have a lot of churches around us that ha- collect money for people who don't have anything. So I told her, I'm like, hey, go around, go to that church. You know, they can help you with your copay. I can all but guarantee it since it's like $3 or $2, whatever it was. And she came back and she was super appreciative of it. And I found out after that, it wasn't even for her. It was for her, uh, I think it was her brother who's autistic and just got fired from his job at the airport mm, wow. because of some, because he's severely autistic and somebody said something or brushed up against him and caused him to hit them back, which really isn't a fault from him. It's a, it's a mental health thing he has to deal with. And he lost a job, so he was really stressed out. He was having a lot of anxiety, and he was getting some medication. And so like, I just kind of started on his path with her. And the next thing I know, she's, like, so thankful that I just told her where his church was. that I was, like, she was in tears. I'm, like, you know, please don't cry in front of me. I'm not good with this. But, yeah. <laughs> but you know, like, hey, I'm glad I helped you out. And she was super appreciative of it. And it just took that little bit of me putting myself in her shoes and going, if I had to get $2 or $3 to pay for my copay, where would I go to get it? And that little pause or that little thought of putting myself in their shoes for a few seconds made all the difference into her and her brother that day. And I'm not saying this to brag or anything, but it's just one of those things that my, I didn't even think about it. My tech pointed out to me later in the day of, Hey, I really liked how you did that. And I was like, well, I didn't, I didn't do anything. I just, you know, did what I would to help her. She then kind of pointed out to me what I did. And I was like, Oh, I didn't even think about that. So that's kind of the way I always approach it. What do you think? Is that the way you would approach some, some situations like that? Or like, was that a good way of doing it? You know, like hearing stories like that, I mean, it's, it really like warms my heart to know that like, those are exactly why we do what we do. You know, like when I think about, and, and this is, this is, this is hard for me to talk through because I'm no longer in a role where I'm providing direct patient care. Uh, you know, uh, running VUCA, you know, it's a completely different role in day to day that I have where I remember the reason I went into pharmacy and the, my passion behind pharmacy was to directly interact and take care of patients. And that one extra step, it's usually just one extra step, which is crazy, goes so far. You know, it does it does so much for someone, uh, which is it's crazy to think about how just one extra step for someone is like is so much more than what you might think it is. And it's also not hard. Like it's actually very easy to do that one extra step for that patient that could mean the world to them, you know? And I think, you know, that's something like that is exactly what I would have done. Um, you know, I, there's a bunch of stories I probably have that I can talk about of how it's just, just all these examples of just, it's that one extra step, but it also makes your, your, your job fulfilling. Like it, it's also like from a selfish perspective, like, you know, yeah. forget about like, of course you just help someone, but then from a selfish perspective, you're like, man, I feel really good about myself right now. And then my tech yeah. saw it and she, or he loved it. And now I'm feeling really good about, so like you actually start to feel good, you know? So even from a selfish perspective, it's a great idea to just do that extra step for someone. So, um, that's amazing, man. That warms my heart to hear stuff like that. Well, thanks. Yeah. And I, I think one issue that people might think if they're not a pharmacist listening to this, they might think, 
well, yeah, you guys are well paid. That's what you're supposed to do. But a lot of us who work in a more of a corporate setting have so many numbers to meet, so many quote unquote metrics to meet when it comes to things. Sometimes that care aspect can get lost because of that. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you said, just take that one step. And a lot of times that's all it literally takes is that one little step, that, that extra inch you just got to push through to try and break down that wall for somebody. And again, it doesn't matter if they're a different race, your race or whatever, doing that one little step helps a ton. And where I work with, you know, people see me and I, I'm the minority where I work being white, but people see me. And sometimes I have to kind of, like you said earlier, prove myself that I care. I have to prove myself that I want to do that one extra step for you. And when I do that, you see just a ton of rewards with it. And it just, it builds a good rapport with the people. They come back, they now trust you. Same with your technicians and other people in the store, who's ever working there. And I, I think you hit that in the head. If, if there's one thing you can do, it's, just take one step to help somebody. And if you know what, it might not always work out. Sometimes those things backfire. We all yeah. have plenty of stories <laughs> of that, I'm sure. Yeah, but, no, for real. Facts. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. But at the same time, as you know what, at least you can, I don't want to say die in the sword. At least you can know that, you know what, I put my best foot forward and did everything I could to help them. So I think that's the way, like you said, you can have a little pride and go, go sleep well at night. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so what other things do you think pharmacists, techs, heck, even district managers or other healthcare workers could, could do to kind of, I don't want to say improve race relations, but make an impact with somebody who is not their race? Any ideas on that? You know, two things here. I think one, just being, and this kind of goes back to the being nice thing, like just being super nice to everyone, I think is is like probably the best thing that anyone can do for, for any, obviously anything, but especially race relations, because being extra cognizant about being nice, I think is, is helpful. Um, and, I, but I also think just being cognizant of some of the problems and issues that occur and maybe even some of the things that you say, um, you know, you, we were previously talking, especially about how someone said something that, um, you know, depending on who that person is, you know, you take it a certain way potentially. But I think just being cognizant of the things that you do or say, and, and I, I, there's one example of something that I actually had to do. This was, this isn't race related, but something that I've done in my professional, um, development was, when referring to someone that was traditionally known as a he to mention to either saying they, them, or he or she. And that's something I had to like really realize and, and, and like think about and, and actually actively do, you know, like asking, Hey, did your doctor say this or that? Or did he or she um, do this or that? Instead of just saying, did he, or assuming it was a he, or sometimes even assuming it was a she. So just because with today's day and age, like, there shouldn't be any sort of like assumption that someone is in a certain role or position. So I myself had to make sure that when I'm thinking about those things, I'm realizing like the culture that I was raised on and, and what media used to portray was that men were in certain like, you know, roles versus women and realizing that that is not the case and that, and it shouldn't be the case. And that I have to like take control of the things that I do and say, to make sure I'm not making those sorts of assumptions and making sure I'm realizing that it, it's a lot of times it is a she sometimes it, sometimes it is a he, but I can't make that assumption. And, and I, and I'm super cognizant of that. Like I was on a meeting recently where I had to, like, I actually corrected something that like someone said it was like more, it was like a, a male thing, but I was like, Oh, or a woman could be a woman, you know, like and I was just like, you know, unconsciously just me. When, when I say unconsciously, actually consciously, but like, 
just being a reflex now that I'm always cognizant of something like that. And I think more people, and I think now this, this is definitely a point with, um, with the unfortunate circumstances with George Floyd. I think people are getting to that point where they're being a lot more cognizant of the things that they do and say, but I think just like more and keeping it up and realizing that day to day, always having that sort of like cognizant thoughts of, of the things that you may say, do, or think in terms of someone else of color, someone that looks different to you. So I think that's definitely, that's definitely one thing. It's just being like cognizant of that. But then I also think we need to start like, not, not to say that, uh, not that actions between a white person, a black person or, or someone of color, not of color, but I think within, within, within colleagues, within family, I think calling things out that are that to someone else that may have done something that may appear racist or may be racist or may have some sort of prejudice, some, something like that. I think speaking about it, especially for people that you're comfortable with doing it to someone that you're, you're not comfortable with, or you don't know causes a potential altercation and problems. But when you're comfortable with someone like a colleague, a friend, a family member, you should be able to also have those, those like conversations about like why what they said was like was wrong or, or even ask why did you say that or like maybe you should say that this way instead uh so i think ha- actually starting to have those conversations and i'm not saying publicly to show that you're you know a social justice fighter but like whether it be public or in private i just think those conversations to start to happen amongst colleagues um of, of people that are not of color yeah no i think that's a good point and it- you know, sometimes at work, you know, you make jokes back and forth with each other because you know each other real well, but that's because you're comfortable. I guess that's why a lot of my conversations, just from my family being all white, obviously, that I, I've had those conversations with technicians because I built a rapport with them, I built a trust with them, and they have that trust with me. And we talk about a lot of stuff at work. And, you know, a lot of times, so my, my store actually was even closed down because of protests. And it wasn't robbed or looted, but they were just worried about it after seeing stuff in the news. And that day, you know, even the day before, once we found out, we're telling people, hey, come in by noon. We're going to close down. Come in. And we got bum rushed that morning with a ton of people. Yeah. And so, so many people were like, oh, are you guys scared? And I would just look them, you know, dead in the eyes, like, no, I'm with you. We're just closing down because we got to look out for everybody here. And that's why we told you to come on in. And the it sounds weird, but just being that open and honest with people that like, let them know, hey, no, I'm with you. I understand. I'm here to help you. But like. Please, you know, also be a little bit respectful of why I'm do- why we're doing this. It got a lot of people like, I don't want to say talking, but really having a different tone with us, a very respectful tone of being like, all right, thanks, man. And like, you know, walking out the door and they were just, they, they saw us in a different light then when they realized we weren't closing because we were necessarily scared. We were closing a lot of times because we were actually supporting them and wanted to make sure it was peaceful and there was no, no way this could go wrong. So yeah. I, th- I thought that was a, a really a really interesting dynamic that was one off with what's going on in the world today that was it just very unique and could not really be duplicated if it wasn't this current present day and time, whether it be in pharmacy or anywhere in retail for that matter. Yeah. You know, I think what's also interesting to think about it too is is understanding and not faulting cultures. Like, you know, I actually had a conversation with a police officer recently um, who's who's a friend of mine from high school. And he's, he's um, like, he's Hispanic, but he could pass as someone who's white, right? He's a Hispanic white guy. And um, I'm obviously black. We went to the same high school together and we were just in, we wanted, I wanted to have some conversations because, you know, uh, you know, he would post things about like blue lives matter and things like that. So I was like, Hey, let me get on the phone with him and like talk through some of this stuff. And we had a pretty lengthy conversation 
And it, what's funny to think about, I would never think of him as a racist, right? But because he's a cop, a lot of people would. But what's yeah. funny is that uh, uh, we grew up in a high school that was extremely diverse. And we were just reflecting on, like, we didn't have racial issues in school. Like, and when I say racial issues in school, amongst our peers. Like, there was yeah. no picking on someone because they were white or calling someone a slur or any of that. If we had problems, it was like character problems or like someone did something wrong. It had nothing to do with how they looked, their skin color, the language they spoke. Because being in Miami, especially in certain areas, it is extremely diverse. But one thing that he realized, and he was like, look, I, I'm not ignorant to know that someone that grew up somewhere else uh, in a different culture, even as kids, didn't have that already ingrained in them and like go through those things. So there's also things to work to think about too, in terms of like the culture that people are raised in is also like, it's also something to address. And, and I think that's also why, I mean, I'm not a historian and know, you know, exactly what may or may not have happened in Miami in terms of like, uh, you know, cops killing black men essentially, but you don't hear a lot of that stuff coming out of Miami, especially recently because it's the diversity here. And even, a lot of the forces in Miami are extremely diverse. Like the police officers are extremely diverse. So like we don't have a lot of those, what appears to me, and I'm not saying I'm an expert at this, but it, it appears that we don't have a lot of those issues here. But then you also have to realize that it's very unique in Miami because we were, yeah. we're just so in, we're just so engulfed in diversity. It's just a part of, it's just, it's just how we know life, but that's not the case in the rest of America. Um, and a lot of times we have to fight literally years of culture and we were just talking about it too, like you're, you know, potentially how recent it is also you're talking about, um, or, or like there, that there's some people that have in their families, people that might have racist tendencies or may actually be racist, like, like legitimately. And they know their family, like they know these people. And then on the same token, on the other end, that there's people that have been on the other side of that racism, that their grandfather or great uncle or whatever the case may be, have gone through some like legitimate, like race issues. So it's also coming to realization that we're fighting cultures and years of people dealing with racism, but also culture and years of people actively being a ra or not actively being a racist, but just being a racist, you know, like, so that that's also yeah. a difficult thing that we have to deal with, with fighting these sorts of problems. And, and that also goes to being a healthcare professional because we, like you and I, we've come from these families, you know, where. Um, depending on what side, what, what area you might've been raised in, you know, we, we come from that. So. Yeah. And you know, the one thing that got me recently, and I've been super following this, just, I don't look at, some people might look at this as a left or right being like political issue. I look at this as a humanities issue more than anything else. I want to make that very clear. Like this is about taking care of other humans. I don't care what side of the aisle they're on when it comes to like this side of the debate. Cause like you mentioned the blue lives matter tends to be a little more, red leaning as opposed to like some of the black lives matter movement. But I've always thought this was just one of those things that you just have to treat people like people. And you know, that's, that's it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what they are. If they have a disability, sure. Do what you can to help them out. But like they're people at the end of the day. And that's the biggest thing. And maybe that's a little unique what you said there in Miami, because where I grew up in Cleveland, like it's a, it's a pretty segregated city. If you're on the West side, you're pretty much white. And on the, on the east side, there's a, a lot more black, but it's very pocketed with that. And we, we definitely have some of those issues. My brother-in-law is actually a Cleveland police officer. And so I see his side of it. I actually job shadowed him back in the late 90s, I think it was, before September 11th, when they still let you ride around the back of a cop car for a job shadow day. And going through, like, to put myself in his 
in his boots for like that one day was super eye-opening to kind of see like his side of it. And I'm not going to sit there and say that, yeah, please, I, I understand police brutality. That's not what I'm saying at all. It was, it, it's maybe it's the exact opposite, but it's just interesting for me to have like these very different looks at it, it was, whether it's, I agree with the Black Lives Matter movement, but I've also see, like spent one day in their shoes, if you will, to see what a, a cop sees on the street in an in inner city area. Yeah. what You know, what's interesting too, uh, uh, so it's, I, I actually kind of want to share this a little bit. I know it's kind of off topic from what we were kind of talking through, but it was interesting to hear about like, in my mind, I'm thinking, why would this dude that I know well, and I consider him a friend, why would he post Blue Lives Matter at a time like this? You know, and, and that's, yeah. that's really the, con- which is, which is, which these are the conversations that we need to have, you know, and, and I'm, I'm fortunate that I have a friend that I can talk to and we had, it was, it wasn't heated at all. It was, it was literally like a normal conversation. It was great. But it also opened my eyes a little bit to see where he's coming from because it, it that phone call actually allowed me to realize that, you know, there's some people that will, you know, scream all lives matter, but I, yeah. but then there's some people that will scream blue lives matter and then black lives matter. And, and, and realizing that those are three separate things I think was, um, was, a, was an eye opener for that conversation because it wasn't that like what he was telling me, and I'm not saying that this is the case for every single officer that screams blue lives or, or, or types in or promotes blue lives matter. But his thing was, which I think is extremely valid was I understand there's problems and 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 that reform is needed especially in a lot of across America he completely understood that and understood all the wrongs that happened that he sees that happened that every normal human being sees that is wrong but then he says that being an officer he's now getting hate towards him for being an officer which which i yeah. can which i can completely realize like it's 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 a really dumb idea to fight racism with a different form of racism yeah. You know, and I think so I, I can I can understand why they would why, you know, it's important to reckon and, and also why it's important to talk about it now, because it's basically it's basically a def, like and, and I'm not trying to like um, defend this and, and you'll never see me post this out publicly and like, you know, and but I, I'm just trying to come from an empathetic perspective as to why someone might be posting that it's because they're we're tr- we're all trying to get to the same goal of like reform and 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 battling injustices but some people are doing it the wrong way and i think yeah i think treating like i think treating every single officer like they're the worst officer out there is the wrong way to approach that and that's why i think it's so it make it, it it's coming together as like a blue lives matter also with a with a black lives matter the all lives matter thing is a whole nother situation those people just really don't get it <laughs> i feel <laughs> like um you know, there's that example about the whole house on fire thing or like the yeah. walking for, you know, the relay for life cancer walk. You know, you're not you're you're walking to like raise awareness for cancer, not, you know, raise awareness for hypertension. So like there's there there's clear the whole all lives matter thing. I mean, that that's a whole nother subject. But in terms of the blue lives matter thing and like like I, I just wanted to have a conversation to understand because it was I was like, man, I cannot believe that this guy is doing this at this time. Yeah, but I was I I grouped that with like the all lives matter kind of thing and and what people say, but to to realize that he's an officer trying to also fight for reform, you know, like which is crazy to think about. Yet he's now being treated similar to how what people say black people are treated, like all black people are the same, all of them are dangerous, and whatever the case may be. Now we're doing that to the police, um, to every single officer we see, and like when you know when I say we, like people that are that are doing these things, but. So it's it's definitely uh, it's it's difficult, man. It's it's definitely difficult yeah. times. Um, 
And I think it's just yeah. now it's just a time to, like you mentioned, just be nice, try to communicate, um, talk to people. Uh, I think I think having like it's tough to do it online, but I think just like if you see something, just call like actually call them, talk to them. It's so different than having a conversation through um, through online because you do lose some of that context. And I think in times like this, the context isn't the context is important. Yes, totally. And it goes back to that point you said earlier, taking that one step, showing a little bit of care. Uh, one thing I always tell my technicians is, you know, you have two ears and one mouth. It means you should probably listen twice as much as you talk. So when you do that with patients, you get a lot back from them. And that's when you can make a difference. And you spend that time listening to them. And then you can, okay, I know where you're coming from. Here's how I'm going to reach out to you. Here's how I'm going to, I don't want to say spin this, but here's how I'm going to work this so that I can help you. And kind of to sum up a little bit of this conversation here before we dive into kind of usually the way I end some of the podcast episodes, I actually spent some time working in Minneapolis when I was on rotations back in 2009. And one of the things I did when I was there was I went and volunteered, I think twice at a free clinic. And I don't know what neighborhood it was in, but it was in one of the lower income neighborhoods like where George Floyd was. And the thing that I thought was so crazy was, you know, when we were there helping them, there was, I think everyone who was there with the group I was with was either Asian or white. And a lot of times they were like, Hey, thanks so much for coming down here. And, you know, like, thanks for helping us. Like, Hey, can we do that? And like, they had all these questions for us, but they were so appreciative of it. And like you said, all we did was take that one step and show care. We drove down there, we showed up and we did what we knew that could help them. That's all we really did. Mm -hmm. But they were so appreciative of it that they didn't care who we were, where we were from. We were there to help them. And that's all that really mattered to them. And that's where I think kind of tying this back into pharmacy is such an important thing. And like we've said repeatedly, that the that one step and showing a little bit of care is what really matters here. And context is key. I like that you said, obviously, don't bring this up with everybody because that's just going to lead to some fight somewhere along the line. Yeah. No, no matter no matter who it is, even if you might agree with them, you might just disagree on a certain angle of it. So I'm again, thanks for coming on the podcast. I can't I can't express it how much I appreciate people like you who are willing to have a conversation like that with people like me to help understand this and kind of share our thoughts that hopefully we can, I don't want to say change minds, but get one or two people to have that one takeaway from this conversation so that they can help make a difference in people's lives. Whether it's just being a human or specifically in this case, maybe being a pharmacist, I think either way it has a huge impact with that. I agree. And thank you for having me on and, and being able to have a platform to talk about it. I think Honestly, like, you know, this is just I, I don't think I would have done this on my own, which is weird. You know, uh, obviously, I have my own <laughs> podcast. Uh, I've I've I think anyone, everyone has been through a lot the last couple of months and then especially yeah. over the last couple of weeks. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I would have had this conversation on a platform like this if you didn't, you know, kind of say, hey, let's talk about it. Uh, so I really have to, you know, send that appreciation back your way as well. And thank you for um, willing to do it. Yeah. And, you know, one thing just to kind of share with listeners before we uh, I ask my questions again, I think the one thing that we're both aiming for here is I know, Richie, you guys are expecting and me and my wife just had a kid, as some listeners may know. And we don't want our children being brought up in a world that this is still an issue 50, 30 years from now, like our parents had to deal with in their generation yeah. and that we're dealing with again today. Yeah. I mean, like I and it's it sucks because like it's just crazy to think I've already had these conversations with my wife because yeah, we don't know what our kid's going to look like yet. But, um, and, and <laughs> because my wife is Asian, so 
it's going to be an interesting uh, looking baby. But, uh, <laughs> um, but let's say he does come out looking a lot like me, um, or at least with my skin color. Uh, now we probably ha- are we, are we going to have to train him also, you know, with how to yeah. put his position his hands um, when he's talking to a police officer and how, you know, they really can't think like that. Ha- like also he has to have his wallet on his lap, you know, ready to go. So it doesn't look like he's reaching back for something like so I, I don't want to have to do that with him as well. But, you know, but it's it's the reality if things don't change and cultures don't change. So for sure. All right, so there's two questions I was able to come on here. Obviously, you're pretty experienced in pharmacy, so I want to hear your answers on this. Uh, what one thing would you change about pharmacy if you could just change one thing? So if I could change just one thing, it would be our, I think it'd be the pharmacist's perspective on dispensing medications. I okay. I am a fan of not tying our clinical abilities and our clinical services to the need to dispense a medication. That makes sense. There's a lot of movements going that way. And I can see where you're going with that. So I think that's more than fair. Yeah. I I just think we we would be much more free uh, in terms of being able to generate revenue in terms of being able to operate a business or build a healthcare brand um, provide services, you know, without the need to, and I think utilizing more, uh, automation and, you know, um, services that help us better deliver an easier, easier, like easily deliver medications to patients and having pharmacists focus on what pharmacists like really want to do, which is help people, um, with their healthcare. Yeah. I, I like that one. That's the one I don't think I've had anyone say yet on well, if you could change one law about pharmacy, federal or state, me and you are in different states, maybe you got one down there, but you just absolutely can't stand. What one law would you change in pharmacy? You know, this one's tough because I feel like there's a bunch of things that like I would I would change, but I, I think there there's two things that come to mind immediately that I know that are that are law related, and I don't know if this is specifically state or federal, but uh, one of them being pricing. I think pricing is just way too difficult to deal with. And I feel like there has to be some law around uh, <laughs> like simplifying pricing. I don't know. But that's just yeah. that's just a random pain point that I have about pharmacy as a whole. But um, I also think, uh, and I don't know if this is like out of the wheelhouse of kind of what you look for to answer this question, but I think it's kind of ridiculous that pharmacists have to uh, call a, a physician to change something very simple on a prescription. Like, if like if one drug class is not covered and we need to switch it to a different drug class, like a different drug in that class, it's the same drug, you know, same like level of effectiveness, uh, same level of te- toxicity potential and safety efficacy profile that we have to hinder workflow to call the doctor's offices to have that change for the patient, which they're always going to say yes. It's almost like never that they'll say no, especially the, half the time they're like, well, what do you think? <laughs> you know, they're asking us, well, what should we do then? You know, like, so that, or which is covered. Yeah, exactly. That is a huge freaking pain. And, you know, I don't know if that, and, and I know that there's, a, there's technically a state law that says like, you must, you know, dispense what the doctor prescribes or whatever, but I feel like there should be some stipulation in there with some leeway to allow us to, without needing to be engaged in a, in a collaborative practice agreement. Um, I think that should be easy for us to do. Yeah, and I, I know even the older bachelors or RPH pharmacists think that, but I think everyone who definitely has a PharmD could 
mic drop and walk away on that one thing unanimously yeah. with what we should be allowed to do. It's ridiculous, man. It, yeah. Sometimes, you know, like we are definitely the most underutilized person in healthcare. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. And I got flack for this actually once because, uh, I, I wrote an article about how, you know, the unfortunate realization that what a pharmacist is doing at a community pharmacy is, you know, there's a, there, a large percentage of it is not things that they learned in pharmacy school to like provide better care. Yep. And yeah. uh, even just, you know, not even thinking about how other professionals can utilize us, just us in ourselves and our own pharmacies are not being utilized as best as we can. So I, I definitely agree. Awesome. Hey, thanks again for coming on. Uh, people, if you want to learn more about Richard, meet him. You can check him out. He's on every form of social media you can think of. He's got the RX Radio podcast, which is awesome. Definitely check it out. It takes definitely a little bit different perspective than I do on this one. And go go check it out. It's actually what helped, like I said, inspire me to do this. And he was a huge, huge uh, leader in getting me to even do this podcast through seeing some of the work he was putting out there. But if you can leave me a five-star review, I always appreciate it. And just do, you know, leave us a review so people can find us. And go to the same for RX Radio. As you heard, Richie's a, a very well-spoken man who knows the stuff around pharmacy and even more than that. So thanks again, Rich. I appreciate it. And hey, stay safe and everything you can down there and keep fighting the good fight. Eric, thank you, man. And keep up the great work. This is amazing. Like I remember you kind of just starting this out and to see what it's turned into is awesome. So anyone listening, please keep supporting him. Uh, he has an amazing uh, vision and passion for what he does. And uh, Eric, love what you're doing. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Rich. And thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics. Really hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Uh, you know, I really do thank Eric for taking the time to have that conversation with me. Um, like I mentioned, I don't know if I would have done that. Um, just by myself on here and I'm glad he was able to uh, ask some questions and, and kind of be thoughtful about the conversation so I'm really glad we got to do that make sure to check out his podcast the political pharmacist I'm going to link all his information all his social media stuff in the show notes of the podcast uh, to allow you to connect with him if you'd like to make sure to subscribe if you haven't yet connect with me on any of your favorite social media platforms and as always thank you so much for tuning in I really do appreciate it hope you have a great rest of your day Pharmacy.